Chapter 42 Susie Matthews strode down the corridor and after knocking on the door to the chill-out room she popped her head in, beckoned to see Quinn and then stepped back outside. As Quinn took the hint, she left Angthorne Saltis together chatting and headed out the door. The door immediately closed behind her and standing in the corridor with Matthews, the conversation kicked off. How do you want to play this, Quinn? asked Matthews. It's unbelievable, replied Quinn. She herself was buzzing. Her adrenaline had kicked in once Salstead had dropped the name of Charlotte Mblawi. Says she saw Mblawi two weeks ago. Two weeks ago? The woman's been missing for six years, exclaimed Quinn. I know, I've just started reviewing the file, replied Matthews. Downloaded it for missing persons. Says here that your Jack Milner reported her missing late 2013. He's your partner, isn't he? Yes, replied Quinn, still trying to take in the impact of it all. She knew Jack had his own ghosts, and she wondered what the hell he'd be thinking now once she told him about the Mblawi connection. Quinn, this might be too personal for you. You're too close to the case, too invested. Maybe you should step aside. Bollocks, Quinn commented back. There's no way that's going to happen. I need to know now what happened to that woman. It might open up also what happened to her sister. You realise both could be alive after all this time. Sure, but you are too invested in this case, aren't you, inquired Matthews. Yes, but that's why I want this case. And with that, Quinn turned tail and headed back into the room. Matthews hesitated for a moment, wondering if she should first update Simon Jenkins. And then thought about it, turned around and headed back into the room with Quinn. Chapter 43 in pulling the file, Susie Matthews had managed to get an idea of the case of the Belgio-Congolese woman known as Shani Mblawi, who had gone missing in late 2013 in Peterborough. Mblawi had last been seen on Lincoln Road. A witness had reported her being dragged into a blue transit van. When the witnesses stepped forward to try and ask what was happening to the woman, an East, East European accident man had stepped forward. She thought he might be Polish and had told her to clear off. She'd done so, fearing for her safety. But she also worried about the woman and reported the incident to the police. The man was tall, lanky, with an East European accent, possibly Polish. She described him as blonde-haired with tattoos on his hands. She couldn't recall the actual tattoos, but she thought to herself and mentioned the police she thought it might have been an eagle's head. She wasn't sure. She was unable, however, to remember the vehicle registration, but she did state that the van didn't appear new and it was definitely a dark blue in colour. Pity Matthews look at the file. That could have made all the difference if they'd known the number plate. How small details made the big difference in cases. That's why it was always crucial that every detail was filed and reviewed. She did, however, make a note about the blue transit van. Then she thought for a moment. Actually, not too dislike the same van that they'd pulled over at the Bury St Edmunds this morning at Waitrose. Matthews made a mental note to check the age and registration of the vehicle. She believed the car, or the van as it was, was still parked up at Waitrose. From recollection, however, the desk sergeant would have confiscated the keys off the driver. Chapter 44 Still reeling from Carolina's comments, Ash Quinn had done her best to put a lid on her own emotions. She did not want to rattle Salsa's cage or put her on edge. She just wanted to find out what happened to Shani and Blawi. When questioning why she'd been returned to the station, the translator managed to keep Carolina calm with news that the team just had to complete a little more paperwork. 
prior to removal to a safe house. And then finally, just after 2am, Sunday morning, the sign-up was completed and Carolina was under the protection of Susie Matthews. They were on the move. Carolina had been advised that she was not under arrest, but that she was being kept safe for her own protection. The MSHTU team would take care of her, both in terms of physical protection, a warm place to stay, food and clean clothes and a bed for the night. All of which Susie thought might be too much for Carolina to handle. Emotional turmoil. So Susie Matthews had also assigned the support of a family liaison officer who thankfully spoke not only Lithuanian but Russian and Ukrainian. Her name was Bin Farfayek. The translator Ankfor was thanked for her efforts and put on standby for possible use later on Sunday. Soltis was signed out the front desk and carefully escorted under an unmarked police car. Susie Matthews sat in the passenger seat, Soltis in the back with a family liaison officer, Fayek. The driver was a local policeman who kept his mouth shut, focused on the road, and then drove the occupants to the south house. However, unbeknown to the four occupants of the unmarked car, one road away from the entrance to the business park sat a dark black BMW. Not expecting any trouble for the occupants for that night, the car, with the police driver driving, thought nothing of the BMW tailing them as he entered onto the A14 road and then onto the A1 motorway. Even this early in the morning, there was enough traffic on the road to ensure that the black BMW could stay two or three cars back and remain inconspicuous as the two cars headed north along the A1. Some 15 miles north, they took the turn on the left, signposted for Stilton in the village of Sawtree. After a mile or so down a single road, the car looped and dropped down onto a roundabout and then took a B road, acknowledged as heading for Home Village. The car then sped into Home Village and cut down to 20 miles an hour before taking an immediate left-hand turn and heading into the Homewood complex. This was a complex of square-rooted roads leading to a group of residential dwellings. Driving up to the far north of the square, on the eastern side, as they headed down towards the housing complex, the car then entered a small single-track road that could only really be spotted under the nearby streetlights. And then the car stopped suddenly 20 yards down at a separate old four-bedroom property. This property was set slightly away from the rest of the houses and historically had been known as the woodcutter's home, the woodcutter of Homefen Woods. The property was ideally chosen as a safe house due to the fact that it had a perfect panoramic view of the area as well as a private woodland to the rear. Anything coming on to the square block could be seen. No vehicles could approach the property without being spotted. It was a perfect safe house. And so, further back down the road, the black BMW also took the left-hand turn and proceeded slowly to enter the complex block and then pulled to the left and parked up on the side of the road. They'd just managed to see the taillights go off on the other car as it hit the single track. The BMW car driver, Roman Beck, turned off his engine and stayed hidden in the darkness. He immediately picked up his mobile burner phone and called the boss. Then, just after finishing his call, he spotted the white Hyundai pass him and he hoped and prayed that he had not been spotted on the side of the road. Driving the Hyundai, Ash Quinn drove down onto the single track and parked up at the safe house. She left her car, locked it and was greeted by the police officer who opened the front door of the property and let her in. After settling in and ensuring that Calarina, 
knew that the police officers were there on her side and there to look after her, Ash Quinn decided to go for one more final push before the end of the day. For Calarina, it was now almost 22 hours since she'd awoken that cold Saturday morning, handcuffed next to Igor Drabkov. How her life had somehow changed in the last 24 hours. Nevertheless, she remained wary. Life had treated her shit so far in her world, so she still expected the worst. Chapter 45 Sure, Carolina Saltis had initially picked out Charlie and Blau in the missing persons poster, but that was it. Just that. She pointed her finger and confirmed that she'd seen her two weeks ago. She knew now that she gradually needed to open up and that Calarina, therefore, was going to be asked more questions by Quinn. Quinn had the case buried deep in her memory after Jack Milner, her partner, had initially met Shani and Blawi back in 2013. She'd recalled talking to Jack many times how he'd managed to save her from an incident down at the O'Driscolls, known as the Pussy Club. But she knew now, with Shani and Blawi missing, as well as her sister, that Jack had had to live with that knowledge for six years, and day by day it had eaten away at him. Now she had the opportunity she hoped for the truth. As such, Quinn sat down with her cup of tea in front of Saltis and eyed her carefully. Now, Carolina, she said, I know it's late in the morning and it's been a long day, but it's important that we get the key information down as soon as possible. I need you to help me with something. Ash Quinn had done her homework. She sat opposite Susie Matthews and Carolina. The family liaison officer, Fayek, took a back seat, but she herself nursed a warm cup of coffee in the single seat nearest the window. Every so often she'd browse out through the curtains and either rode ahead. Silence. It was still dark outside. Quinn opened the paper folder, placed a photograph on the coffee table in front of Carolina. Carolina's eyes immediately scanned the photo and she perked up. Yes, yes, she pointed at the photo. Quinn realised that the woman's attempt at spoken English was far better than before and she had made a mental note earlier that she had actually begun to speak English. So she was also wary of Carolina, just as much as Carolina was wary of Quinn. This woman, Quinn tapped the photo, Shani and Blaway. Yes, yes, replied Saltis. When did you meet her? Saltis paused, took a few sips from her own cup. Two weeks ago. How do you know it was two weeks ago? asked Quinn. The man she was with. It was his birthday party, October 12th. Quinn made a note. Where did you meet her? By the sea. By the sea. Again, Quinn made a note. Any idea of the place? I don't understand. Fayek stepped in and helped translate. And so the conversation ensued. By the sea at a caravan park. A caravan park? Any idea of where? I do not know. It's October, it was cold, it was somewhere by the sea. I think they said somewhere north. The caravan park, did it have a name? She shook her head, 
Sorry, I do not know. Take your time, please. Solstice closed her eyes for a moment and tried to think. She paused. Yes, I think it was a place, Skegness. I saw a sign that said Skegness. We made some notes and nodded. How long did you see this woman? Just the once. What, that evening? Yes. She reconfirmed. At Skegness? Yes. What was it, a party? Yes. Who was the man? I don't know. He was a businessman, very well dressed. Very smart. Age? So I was just sat and thought for a moment. Maybe 50 or 60. Fat. But strong. Did you speak to her or him? No. I didn't, but I didn't need to. Please explain, Quinn asked. Her face told me everything I needed to know. She was just like me. Trapped. Prisoner. Being handed around to whoever she liked. What she did do when I was in the toilets was show me her wrists. They were the same as mine. They'd been cuffed before. Why didn't you talk to her? If she was in the toilets. No privacy. How long were you at this party? A couple of hours. Who left first? What do you mean? Well, did you leave first or did she? I did. When I left, she was still with the fat guy. He was all over her. Do you think you'd recognise the man? Interjected Susie Matthews. Salty shrugged her shoulders. Maybe. Did you ever see her again? No, I said that before. Quinn paused and spent some time searching on her iPad. Matthews and Saltis sat back on the sofa and sipped their drinks. Quinn turned the iPad around and presented the picture to Saltis. Recognise this? No, replied Saltis, as she viewed a photograph of Skegness Pier. Then the Skegness High Street. No. The arcades. No. Several caravan parks. No. All looks came back with a no from Saltis. Quinn scurried through her photos on the iPad and continued with the work through a web search. And she brought up another picture of a caravan park. And finally she hit pay dirt. Saltis reacted and tapped the page. Yes, yes, that's the one. Quinn turned the iPad and viewed the chosen photo. She saw numerous static white coloured caravans in the foreground. An entrance to the site on the right with a large blue and yellow sign. Blue and yellow lettering. The Golden Mermaid Caravan Club. In the middle of the photograph, but slightly to the left, Quinn could make out a white wooden slatted building complex. Large built, built on sticks. Sorry, stilts. No doubt built to protect itself against any negative tidal conditions. A large built stilted building. Quinn opened up the picture with her fingers and read the name spread across the top of the building. Skeggs. She immediately tapped in the name on the Google search and after trawling through several images, she turned the iPad back to Saltis. Do you think this might have been the place? Saltis looked carefully at the photos, helped her scroll through, and she identified the Skeggs Clubhouse come nightclub. Yes, yes, that's the place. 
Sitting back and researching a website promoting the site, Quinn read the note at the bottom of the opening webpage that stated the clubhouse was open for business under the usual terms of from Easter weekend until the end of September. So therefore, as she deduced, if Salty's timeline was correct, the caravan park was closed for business at the time that she met Shani and Blawi, some two weeks into October. Chapter 46 Beverly Jones had done exactly as her boss had told her. Krasanoff had been arrested and read his Miranda rights at the station, and then early that Sunday morning she'd made her way home. She set her alarm for 6am, so she got very little shut-eye. But then at 6am she got back in her car and headed down the A14, and there, at a garage just off the side of Bar Hill, she pulled in and pulled up against the Amazon boxes. Putting in the relevant number, she pulled two items from the box before closing it. She returned to her vehicle and immediately sped off and headed up A14 and then onto the A1. From the A1, she found a service station and pulled in over the side. Opening up the first parcel, she found the £20,000, which she smiled at all in cash in 50s and put in her shoulder bag. She then opened up the other parcel. It was a burner phone with a chip. She placed the chip into the phone and immediately it came into life. There was one number in the phone. There's also a text message. She read the message. Call me, 3 p.m. Don't be late. 